All right, here we are. Hello and welcome to Realcom's first webinar in our new series titled Automating Everything to Combat a Looming Downturn. I am Chuck Nicewanger, your Realcom host for today's webinar, Driving Measurable Business Value. This Today we'll be talking about the fundamentals. It's more of centering on uh, what it is, automating enterprise business processes, building operations, data collection, analytics, and why it's important to most companies. Uh, but before we get started, let me go over a few housekeeping items to help you have a great webinar experience. Uh, thank you to all our live attendees. We do encourage you to use the Q&A box on the bottom of your left, bottom left-hand side of your screen to submit questions or comments. It's always better when you're an active participant. We'll probably encourage you along the way. In the handout section, I see two handouts there. You can see the bios. You can see today's uh, slide deck to get more information. Uh, so feel free to download those. For the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out any other internet applications, especially streaming videos. Don't watch The Mandalorian. Watch us, you'll learn more. Take notes, ask questions. This is the way. This is the way. <laughs> if you are experiencing any technical difficulties or issues, with sound or video quality, the best thing to do is disconnect and click on the webinar link again, or you can email ian at ithompson, that's I-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at realcom.com for help during the event, but don't worry, you won't miss anything since you will receive a link with the recording of the entire session. So you can watch it at your leisure and uh, pause whenever you want. And uh, we've included, if you look on there, you'll see my email address, if you think of questions while you're watching this as a recording, uh, just send them to me and I'll forward them along to this group and we'll try to get your questions answered. This education webinar is supported by our outstanding sponsors and technical partners. IBIS helps buildings run better to lower costs and keep employees healthy and productive by connecting systems and people. J2 Innovations is a Siemens company they want to make smarter buildings, smarter equipment, and smarter IoT solutions available to OEM systems integrators, facility managers, and end users. You'll hear more about that again. LinkSpring has solutions that enable users to realize outcomes, efficiencies, and value from their operational data. LinkSpring is at the forefront of moving buildings from smart to smarter. OpenSpace is providing industry-leading solutions for capturing and analyzing the built world with projects in 91 countries, 857 million images, and 15 billion square feet captured to date. You'll hear a lot more about that. Premise HQ automates complex data management across commercial and industrial properties to help their clients reduce operational costs, increase cap rates, and minimize risk. We have a short video from Premise HQ. Let's check it out. With multiple solutions to manage multiple processes, property and facility managers are left with data silos, costly SaaS sprawl, blind spots, and operational inefficiencies. But what if you could combine the systems, processes, and applications that power your properties into a single source of truth? Ground Floor enables you to integrate any technology, application, system, or process you have in place today and in the future for a centralized 360-degree view of your data it standardizes all of your data into a common format to improve interoperability between systems. 
It allows you to create automated workflows to ensure maximum efficiency and reduce costs. It enables you to interact with information in real time through any engine of your choice and generate comprehensive reports in minutes. And it allows you to do all of this without time-consuming manual coding processes for rapid deployment and maximum scalability. And you know, we are always so grateful for the contributions by all of these technology partners to our industry, to Realcom, and to helping us educate our viewers in sessions just like these. So be sure to include these trusted partners in your vendor evaluation process when you're looking for solutions in these areas. So uh, today, our moderator is Andrew Weekland. He's the Senior Vice President of and, and Director of Systems at Development at WP Carey. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, Chuck. How's it going? It's going well. I'm glad you're here. Uh, before we get started, I want to just throw up a quick poll. We've got probably close to 60 people in our live audience. Let's see what their positions are. So if I could take a moment and just get it. It may not be perfect, but if you can identify with one of those areas, that'll give us a good idea of who we're talking to. I think that's a little bit important, Andrew, because that can direct your conversation a little bit better. Absolutely. No, thank you, Chuck. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And, and I want to know more about my audience because uh, to my audience, this you make my job much easier, right? You will be asking questions. You'll be engaging uh, via me as your spokesperson with the panelists. I'm just here to, to guide the conversation the way that most benefits you. So please let me know who you are via this poll. And also, as Chuck mentioned previously, ask as many questions as you like via the Q&A chat. I will get to as many as I can in the time allotted. And really, the goal here is to keep this session as interactive as we can. So I see a lot of technology, no surprise here. We're talking about uh, automation. We have some executives with us. We have asset managers, we have vendors, et cetera. So a nice mix of, of folks here. Um, and while ESG have full-time specialists, we're definitely going to talk about it because it affects all of us in some way these days. <laughs> yeah, definitely on the, 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 the technology side, people looking for answers, looking for solutions, and they have a lot of people solving similar problems. So I'm going to get out of your way, Andrew. I'll see you at the end. Have a great webinar. We'll see you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Chuck. Thanks for the intro. Um, and yeah, so before I jump in uh, with our first panelist, if you could back on myself, I work at WP Carry. We're a global net lease REIT with approximately 1,500 properties worldwide. So we definitely deal with, you know, challenges of scale, challenges of diversifications, um, and we have a 50-year track record. So it's been a very long road uh, with, of continuous improvement, trying to automate, trying to do more, more try to be a leader. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it, it puts us in an interesting position because we have perspective into many markets, many asset classes, but we're always trying to learn more. And automation is is, is a forever uh, objective, right? So I found the, the premise of this introduction, you know, automating everything. I mean, is, is that hyperbole? Is that a realistic goal? It's definitely something we use as a way to think about automation, but no, obviously there's still gonna be tasks that have to be done by hand. Um, commercial real estate historically is very resistant to automation, at least compared to uh, other industries related to finance. Um, so, you know, we're not coming at this glibly saying, oh, we're gonna come out of this webinar knowing how to automate your entire business and we can all sign off and go home. But it's a very important way to, to think about automation, especially if you're relatively new to it and that maybe you can't automate everything, but everything has the potential for some degree of automation, no matter what type of real estate you invest in, no matter what your role is in the real estate industry, you know, technology has kind of crossed the Rubicon and is now in our buildings. Um, you know, we're working on it every day. Every time we interact with each other, we're doing it, leveraging technology 
new technology comes out every day, whether it be blockchain or AI, et cetera, it's constantly maturing, but also old technologies like tabular databases are more powerful than ever. So it's a constant um, cycle of learning and understanding what's in the marketplace, how to apply it to your business. So that's what I'm gonna be asking these panelists about today, wherever they sit kind of in the real estate market, whether they're down in the properties, making buildings smarter, dealing with climate change, or managing large funds and portfolios of assets around the world, you know, I think all these perspectives matter and they have to really come together because there might be opportunities for automation right under your nose you haven't yet seen, or there might be ways to push automations you have to the next level. So with all that said, I want to introduce my first panelist, Kevin Wang. Hi, Kevin, how you doing? Hey, Andrew, how you doing? Hey, Kevin, good to see you. Uh, so Kevin is the VP of Data Science and Advanced Analytics at Prologis. Um, he oversees R&D, the internal AI platform, development of machine learning models, and other customized data solutions to drive change and results across the business. So with that wonderful uh, bu buzzwords, uh, let me ask you, what's going on at Prologis? We see you guys in the space. You know, Obviously, we also invest in industrial, so everyone who does that knows who Prologis is, at least here in the US. Um, so what, what has been your journey with automation? I mean, people look to you guys as leaders in the space, but what's it like on the inside? Can I tell me how you've, how you've managed to, to mature over the years? Well, I guess now I'm going to start sharing secrets, huh? <laughs> uh, no, but um, in terms of automation, we have a lot of things going on. I think the part that uh, could be most interesting to the panelists, um, to the panelists and the audience here is uh, probably looking at our corporate functions. And the key area that we have been striving for ever since 2020 when um, COVID hit and a lot of macroeconomic conditions just changed drastically from a being bullish to for three months being bearish. And then we started seeing signs that it was starting to be bullish again. And we felt that as these economic cycles started to get faster or these changes started to be a little bit more volatile, it was important to be able to get the data and insights necessary to capture and understand what is going on much faster. And so, and thus with that, what we started to look at very in depth is understanding what kind of metrics and KPIs what models are necessary to automate to be able to gather, gather all of those insights very quickly, either on a weekly basis, monthly, quarterly, whatever timeline that is necessary to drive strategic business decisions across the portfolio. Interesting. So it was really about speeding up cycle time of existing processes because decisions were being made faster? Oh, yeah. That was a big, that was probably the single key driver here for us taking a look at the backend processes our core metrics and KPIs and understanding how we can deliver them faster. Now, were the KPIs also changing at the same time? Because not only do you answer questions faster, but what if the question changes? That, funny you asked, Andrew, it changed almost every quarter, I think. <laughs> uh, if I, if, I mean, if, I, if we just go back to the timeline of the past three years, everyone understands how, how drastically things moved. And for us, it was no different. Uh, one day we were so focused on occupancy, the next we were so focused on rent, and now we're heading to an economic, vol uh, very volatile economic situation. Um, we really, uh, I think your, our earnings is next week, so for those interested in our perspectives, you'll hear all about it. But to help support that kind of volatility, not only do we have to automate and to help uh, automation help us drive efficiency, but also have to be flexible enough where we can change it on the whim. You know, sometimes certain metrics pop up to the top and it's the most important one for that quarter or the next quarter. And then once it starts to stabilize, we realize the volatility has shifted to somewhere else in the portfolio or some kind of other activity in portfolio. 
the automation systems that were in processes we built had to be strong enough and flexible enough where any, it can consume anything and it can spit out anything very quickly with relatively low errors. Got it. So we have a lot of technologists in the audience. Maybe break us down a bit, kind of how you and your team operate and engage with other parts of your business. I assume that like, you're not like sitting in the matrix watching the numbers move all day, right? There's specific targets you're trying to hit based on engaging with, with stakeholders. Absolutely. That would be pretty cool if I was just watching <laughs> all the screen, <laughs> the letters going up and down the screen. But no, to, to give everyone the sense of what that means, um, we have our core list. And generally what we try to do is provide it within a one-day turnaround. Mm -hmm. And so almost always the first step when a new metric is introduced, it is a lot of hack and slash. Uh, you know, we say automation, but it's really someone in the background working with Excel, SQL, and some Python scripts, putting, melding and uh, meshing the data together. Sometimes that's me. Sometimes those are our team members. Uh, once we have the first layer done, and that's when the automation portion comes in, we figure out how we can get those scripts uh, to be refined into our standards. Um, to make sure checking on the quality control is there before we move it on to more of a productionalized environment that it can generate on a weekly or monthly basis. That's great. But I think most core is to ensure that there is always a quality control check-in process. The worst thing that we have ever experienced in automation is our initial logic checks out. And then market conditions change, something changes, and the KPI breaks because it was because we didn't realize, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Uh, and automation ran through his logic correctly, but the underlying data just did not support the results. Got it. And then how do you maintain that agility? Is it just by having the right talent on your team? Are there specific tools or processes you're doing? Because as things are moving, if you can't adjust, you're going to be, you know, obviously that one day turnaround is not going to happen. Right. So so how do you keep these things? How, how did you build this program, basically, in, in 30 words or less? <laughs> No problem. The, I would say if there was anything, the single biggest investment we made was making sure that the underlying data structure was very solid and it was flexible. It could do anything that we wanted to. On top of that is all the training necessary for the uh, for the analysts and my team to understand where to go really fast to be able to perform the flexibility necessary. So without that solid data foundation that we have in Prologis, I don't think this would have been possible. Got it. And then as you kind of go through these things, adjusting your metrics, engaging with your stakeholders, running the program, just maybe an anecdote. Is there one kind of parcel of information or like a black swan or a long tail that really stood out to you and was memorable, something you never would have expected that you definitely would not have found without this level of automation? Because some things you just can't ever figure out with a spreadsheet. Oh, yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. I think uh, it was our analysis of vacancy. Um, and this was just back during COVID, we started seeing spike up and we were, um, and I think uh, when you were taking a look at our metrics, you know, our vacancy wasn't just dropping, it was slowly meandering and stopped its uh, decline. Um, and then all of a sudden, as we, because of the automation, we could quickly see the trend that it was changing into. And we realized, hey, COVID might not be as bad for our business as we thought, because everything's shutting down, maybe there's something else there. And that's when we realized maybe it, there could be a pivot that uh, was required from our very conservative stance, um, given everything we were hearing at the time, to something a little bit more bullish. And then we all knew what happened with industrial. It just took off. Yeah. But I mean, hey, maybe that leading indicator that this analytics program gave senior leadership, you know, who knows what the impact would have been. You can't prove the negative way you hadn't had it, but I'm sure they were very appreciative that they did at the time. Um, and they made the investment previously. And the final question I had, and again, audiences, any questions, feel free to drop them in the chat. But, you know, 
how do you kind of drive that business value? I think that was a very obvious thing. If you had a leading indicator that industrial was going to take off post COVID before your competitors, that would be a pretty obvious advantage. But in general, like how are you measuring the success of this analytics program? How are you measuring the incremental success of automation? Are you saying like getting this metric out an hour earlier is worth X dollars? Are you just putting relationships with, with finance and, 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 and the front office? Like what does it actually look like for you to justify these, what I assume are significant investments in, in automation? It is really comes down to education when it comes. And let me just be very specific. This is all about leading indicator KPIs and metrics, right? And when it comes down to that, it's all about education. A lot of the times that when we create these metrics, and I think going through this automation cycle for these leading, I think uh, my team and I probably created over a thousand. Um, and we probably tossed out 97, 98% of them because it just ended up not being valuable. There's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of discussions. Uh, but what we're trying to do is help um, everyone understand, here's how you should understand the data. That ability to tell the story, interpret it in a meaningful manner is very important. And, and setting the right expectations. A lot of the expectations that we set for uh, everyone on the business cycle is understand, these are things you just want to look out for. We don't know if this is how it's going to play out, but if these two competing sig if these two signals start to indicate a divergence of some sort, you know, you might want to start looking at your business in a certain way because it could be an indicator. And so they find value in the fact that they can make decisions faster or it can help them target and focus. They don't really necessarily generate direct measurable ROI because, you know, turning someone's head in one direction, it's hard to quantify that but for them they think it's very valuable especially yeah. with a portfolio of our size and i think when you're making decisions about large complex and expensive assets which buildings are you know every 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 marginal advantage can equal very large dollar amounts in terms of mm -hmm. success if you, if you close a deal you wouldn't have closed or a building was more efficient than it would have been otherwise there's lots of ways to measure but i think you're you're right it, it all comes down to educating you know your stakeholders about what this actually is so they can leverage it for their for their own business so Great point. All right, uh, no questions from the audience just yet. So I, I'd encourage you to uh, please ask questions. We can get back to Kevin later in Q&A. Um, so we'll move on. Thank you, Kevin, appreciate it. So up next, we have uh, Marguerite Westbrook. Hi, Marguerite, how are you? Hi, Andrew, I'm doing well, thank you. That's great. Um, so Marguerite's the VP of Technology at Edens. Uh, she is responsible for providing solutions, directions, and leadership to align technology strategy with the company's goals and objectives. And so from what I've heard, Edens' goals and objectives are expansion. You guys recently did a bit of expanding. Um, so talk us through that. What's going on at Edens and what role is automation playing in, in allowing that, that, that growth and that success? Sure. So I'm going to go and just kind of give you a historical view um, of our portfolio. So up until about 2015, we were primarily on the East Coast. Um, in 2015, we acquired centers in, in Texas. Um, and then in 2018, we acquired a center in Denver. But the really um, the big acquisition for us was coming out of COVID in 2022 when we acquired over 10 centers out in the West Coast. So California and Washington State. Um, and so coming out of COVID, we just were not really scalable or prepared to kind of go through um, a full acquisition, a, a large acquisition of that many properties um, at one time. So um, going to the next slide, basically what our challenges were, were really, um, you know, we really didn't have a scalable process. Everything was manual. Um, and so, you know, and the the acquisitions team is is really working hard to get all these properties on you know 
finalized and onboarded and at the we, we were having bottlenecks in the back end um, and we had limited human capital we couldn't just throw an army of people um, to enter it, all this stuff so I think it came very clear that you know our processes were too manual and they needed to change because then at the and on the back end the business wanted to know why we can't see the why we can't see this information why are, why is this information not in our reporting and analytics so those were the challenges that we really faced and um, that we needed to resolve quickly. So um, I wanted to go through some short-term goals and long-term goals. Our short-term goals initially were, we've got to get the data in. So we basically created an integration with, we use JD Edwards as our ERP system, um, using JD Edwards Orchestrator to import all the critical lease information that we needed for baseline operational metrics and reporting. So we did that. And then we looked, we were looking, we were already looking at automation tools for our abstraction process. So we um, we did a combination of pilots with third party automation, uh, lease abstracting tools, as well as just outsourcing to a third party altogether who, who in turn used their own lease auto abstraction tool. So I think through that process, we really understood the benefit of using AI and machine learning, these new tools with lease abstraction process. However, we still had to make sure that our internal processes were accurate and, um, and consistent. Um, and so I think that we had some challenges as we were going back with these third parties to make sure um, that the information on the lease abstract was accurate so that we could put it into JD Edwards accurately. Um, so I think that was a learning, really a learning process for us. Um, well, I mean, let me ask about that too, because it's, it sounds sure. like a really key fundamental, especially for folks who are just starting their automation journey, is that you had to actually go outside of automation and change your human process in order to enable automation, right? Because it sounds like the human process might not be as standardized or as repeatable as necessary to kind of reach that scale. Um, and I know it's funny, people kind of ask from the outside, well, it's just a lease. How complex is it thinking about a lease they signed for their first apartment? And commercial leases are, are wildly complex. Some are simpler than others, but the, the, the clauses you've seen that you've never seen anywhere else, it seems like almost every lease can be bespoke these days as you accommodate tenants' needs. So talk about that a bit more. What did you, how did you actually engage with the folks that were kind of doing the, the human work, if you will, to allow them to work with you to build automations, whether they be partial automations or a full-blown you know, you know, change of process? So we really had, you know, it, 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 like I, I say all the time, it wasn't really a technology process. It was really the the um, our lease administration folks had to go and review and make sure that the app that that the AI, the machine learning was working right, and we had to train the human trainers that were actually the reviewers that were reviewing the information to make sure that we were pulling the the information out um, accurately because that's what basically the 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 people that, that were actually entering the information into JD Edwards were using the abstract as their guide. So we needed to make sure that it matched what was coming out of the actual lease. And yes, you're right there because we've a lot of the, you know, a retail, um, we've grown through acquisitions. So we've got, you know, there's no standard, even though we say there's a standard lease, there is not one. So there's always exceptions. Right. And then could you able to compare maybe the accuracy or the breadth of data you're getting out of the new abstraction process? versus the old, is it simply faster or is it also different or even better? So it's different and better. So I, I will say right now, what we do um, is we the we basically paraphrase the lease language and put it into JD Edwards and 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 that spits out to it as a in a report. The our leasing and um, property management folks don't like it. 
right? So the good, the beauty with with this least abstracting process and having a tool that does it is that you can define whatever the template is, and it and some of these tools will um, directly pull the information from the lease and also link back to the lease, so that um, that what we're what we've been challenged with from the business is they want to be able to search on key you know key terms across the portfolio across you know um, tenants to kind of compare what we have in in the you know in the leases and what we have currently as our part of our manual process is just not it's just not working anymore yeah no it's, it's funny too because real estate's a long-term game so the questions you're going to ask are going to change through the life cycle of an asset Right? Especially if you bought something through acquisition, you might be coming in right in the middle of a lease and not know everything about the relationship with the tenant and whatnot. And, and it can be very hard to answer these questions. So maybe that's what I'll post to you. Is the automation allowing you to do more so that the leasing teams can actually provide more value to the front office? Or is it simply a way to make the leasing run faster? It's it's to, it's actually both. So, I mean, the, the information is going to be more up to date um, and and accurate. So, for example, when COVID hit, we our legal team went through every lease and pulled out our force majeure clause, right? Well, as soon as they posted that information, it was already out of date, right? So that's part of a part of this automation is 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 getting the information um, formatted in a template that's easy to use and easy to inquire better, faster. Um, and also get the information into into the system as well. So it's kind of a twofold um, twofold process. Got it. And so that sounds like your next step is is to kind of reach the level where where Kevin is, where you kind of give real time analytics and and ask new questions of this leasing data you're now pulling in automatically. What are some of the questions you you think you're going to be trying to answer? I know one question I got is what roofs need repaired at the end of their leases portfolio wide, you know, things like that that are very simple and practical can become very complicated when you start scaling it out across a large complex portfolio. And it's honestly, you know, co-tenancy, sales kick out, all the different, you know, things that that the leasing folks don't necessarily think about when they're doing deals and that get that potentially deals could get halted because, you know, it, it doesn't get um, identified until legal is already is working the deal and says you can't have this deal because of whatever clause or you know i think the other thing too um is being able to tack to to track critical dates so move outs lease expirations um you know when it renewals and things like that everything that we're doing is jd edwards is great as a as a financial platform but it's from a inquiry reporting tool it's really not user friendly at least for not our my group i haven't um so, so then my, my last question is to reach these long-term goals what new technology you don't have today are you most excited to bring in to try and reach that next level well so i think the biggest thing we we piloted the lease abstraction tool we haven't implemented it yet because we don't have our process down and i want to say process is the key to automation right so you got to have a process before you can imp implement anything automated we pi we've piloted things last year we got are we, you know, we've got our, um, you know, feet wet as far as what we want to do, and we can do some things automated, like importing the lease data, but actually full-blown lease abstraction. That's where I pretty much have handed the baton back off to the finance and operations teams and said, you guys need to figure out what information you want to track, what is the system, how is the business process going to change, and who's going to access this information. So we're kind of taking a step back before we move forward to make sure that we're making the right decision. Makes perfect sense to me. You got to do the fundamentals. You got to eat your vegetables uh, before you get your AI for dessert, right? So that's a, that's a 
Awesome. Thank you, Marguerite. It's a great story and a great uh, great to see you guys leveraging automation from a fundamentals first perspective. Um, so before I introduce our next panelist, um, OpenSpace.ai has a quick video. Uh, Ian, if we could share that video before we introduce Francis. Welcome, Francis. Yeah, thanks very much. That doesn't get you jacked up. I mean, I don't know. So let me give you a quick bio. Francis is with Open Space. He's with over 10 years in construction technology. He previously worked at Honest Buildings with owners, developers such as Brookfield, Oxford, EQ Office, Lend Lease, and Graystar until Honest Buildings was acquired by Procore in 2019. You also worked with us at WP Carey. Um, so yeah, welcome, Francis. Uh, what you showed us is obviously a quick pivot here, right? We've talked about portfolio level data, we've talked about lease abstraction. Now let's talk about getting into actual buildings, how to automate you know, what, what people actually do as they manage these properties in the real world. So, so I know you have a few slides to show us as well. Walk us through it. What's out there we may not be thinking about? What's going on? What's the latest on the ground? Yeah, for sure. So when I, uh, after my time at Procore, I kind of was looking around at what's the next best thing. And uh, two sniff tests I always use is, you know, who are the investors? Because if the industry is investing in it and they're the customers, it's usually a good thing to see. And then the second thing is, is it easy enough my dad could use it? I find that there's plenty of technology in here, not easy to use. Most of the people are old school. They want to stay old school, and I respect that. So um, a lot of the research that I did was trying to find something that could be, you know, automated and make people's lives uh, a lot easier. And then when I got to open space, um, at the time we were about 30 people. Now we're about 300, about a billion dollar business. But I met with the folks over at Bentall who've been a client of ours in the past at uh, Honest Buildings. And they basically said, look, I need this to touch every avenue. It needs to buy, build, manage, and sell or lease up my properties. I don't, I don't need something that looks like a GC tool. So that was a couple of years ago. We went to work. We started to roll out kind of different uh, platforms and features to assist really this vertical that we're talking to today. So I'm going to kind of walk you through really how we're able to do those kind of four main components here in the business and why you should leverage AI for each one of them, especially with this interesting economy we have coming up. Um, everybody's heard of drones and spot the robot dog and all this. That's all well and good. And a lot of them can be used for, uh, you know, the job sites that you have. But we want to find practical application. Um, so one of the ways that we've been able to kind of do that is, you know, you get the 360 cameras on your hard hat or hold on a selfie stick. We can ship it to the site that you want uh, and you can be up and capturing and everything's ready within 15 minutes of a finished capture. So one of the big problems we had is people are out there taking cell phone photos, trying to do, you know, inspections, acquisitions or whatever. And it takes them hours where 
us, it takes a couple minutes uh, and then everybody can take a look at it back in, you know, New York or wherever they may be. So I'll take you through kind of some of this way too much text, I admit. But uh, on the buying side, this is really cool. So a few of the customers that we had, um, you know, the, the guys uh, Sentinel in New York, right? They were they're looking at a couple acquisitions. The travel budgets have been cut just like everybody else. So we just shipped the camera to some sites um, way outside of New York uh, City and, and down uh, near, near the Sun Belt. People were able to walk the job site just while they were there on site. And within 15 minutes, asset managers, really the acquisitions team, were able to dial in from New York, drive around the site, mark things up, uh, and kind of get an idea of, you know, what was actually going on and whether or not they wanted to actually go ahead and, you know, potentially acquire it. As we know, there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. Deals are going to be moving fast. This is kind of an easy way to see a bunch of properties while never leaving your office um, and, and using something like AI and 360 capture. So massively re re reduced travel on that. And from the building side, when you're putting together, uh, you know, uh, a building in, in internally there, you, you want you want not only document control, um, equipment inspections, installations, QA, QC, you know, all these kind of major areas, but also pay applications and automation, right? Again, we're going into an interesting thing here, uh, economy where it's like, you know, when you get that pay app, are we actually 70% complete? One of the nice parts about AI is we taught the machine how to read. So now it's how to read drywall, framing, electrical, mechanical, over at MAP. Your whole schedule of values basically can be automated just by somebody going for a walk. It will scan everything, tell you what percentage of completion you're at, what percentage of completion not only you're, you're done on those, but also how it relates to your schedule. And if you're going to be a couple weeks, couple months behind before. So Tishman Spire is a big investor. They're also a big user, and they use it to approve all, a lot of their pay apps remotely. Again, remotely. So I think that's a that's a big component of this. And it's just you push record, you go for a walk. On the management side, that's been kind of a really interesting boon. So, you know, we're going to have a, a lot of folks where they want to do equipment inspections or installs or warranties. Graystar does a lot with warranties, right? They finish up the building, got to come back. This is a way where you can literally digitize your entire portfolio, right? You're not going through, you know, Dutch uh, set of plans in New York City trying to figure out where everything is. You'll have it digitally done, basically a digital twin that's automated for you. Um, and they're able to go ahead and look at things like, when's you know when's this person's lisa you know when we finish renovating the room let me let the leasing team know this one's ready to go kind of speed up that whole process um similar to what marguerite was talking about like when do we know it's ready what, what are some of the terms you can use kind of different features inside the product uh, to well, automate a lot of that what yep. question for you in terms of just the automation breadth available now that we have ai that can read images and read 3d you know uh space spatial yeah. images you know not only can it sounds like you can do what we used to do on a, on a paper and clipboard by walking the site, but like, can the AI see things I wouldn't find if I just hired a local inspector to go to the to the site? Like, what what are you seeing here that goes beyond simply taking the human out of it, but actually doing something modern and new and we didn't see before? Yeah, for sure. I think it's a good complement to the human. You know, where it's like if you look at the bottom right here, that top photo. You know, that, those are those are the folks at Marriott. That's one of their architects. They're walking through, and as it's passively capturing on their head, they're also taking snapshots with their cell phone, automatically pinning to that location, saying, "Hey, we're still seeing quality issues here on VWC." Right on big one. Uh, so IHG reduced their travel, I think, by about 70% using open space. They usually go to site like nine times. They only had to go now like three times, basically. Um, and one of the big things with that was not only were they able to see it remotely and all over all over the country, but also there's a tool in here that you can actually say, show me all the floors with, you know, exit signs that are already on them, like safety issues, right? Show me where all the fire extinguishers are on the entire property. If you just walk the property, it will look, it uses what we call image search and it will look for that image to be repeated, right? So if you're doing, you know, uh, installs of refrigerators or something like that, or show me all the, all the rooms that have, you know, uh, uh, granite countertops, it's able to read that as well. So, 
I, that's I don't know. It's, it's kind of right. We sit here with ChatGPT and all this, and everybody's like, "What? What are we talking about now? You're definitely not going to need a talking head in about three years. I'll be out of a job." But like now that AI can read everything, like how much can that speed up? You know what we know, and then the video on the bottom right, you can also just see through walls and floors. So all of a sudden you have an insurance issue. I'm down here in Naples, Florida. We had a hurricane. You know, you got um, the Angeles Diamond using us for insurance claims, going back in time, what it used to look like versus what it looks like today. You know, so it's you can leverage it. But the the upfront, um, you know, the, the upstart to like get it going isn't anything. You just push record, you go for a walk, you push ends and everything's visible to you. You make it sound so easy. That's that's great. Thank you, Francis. Appreciate it. <laughs> Definitely on the cutting edge here in terms of using those those in building images to to really drive value and 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 learn things about your properties. So thank you so much for that. Um, up next, we have one more video uh, from Ibis before our next panelist comes on. The environment where we work should be a place that makes our comfort, security, health, and productivity the highest priority. The technologies needed to accomplish these results continue to grow in quantity and complexity at an increasing pace. In order for these systems to achieve an optimal workplace environment, they must be integrated with each other for seamless and efficient functionality. To reach these objectives, a master systems integrator is engaged to utilize an elite resource pool of engineers, technicians, software programmers, project managers, and cybersecurity professionals. A successful master systems integrator must be a collaboration partner and an exceptional communicator. The best integrators can respond and adapt at the speed of client requirements, customize the solution freely, and be agnostic to any and all hardware and software providers. Integrated Building Solutions has worked all over the globe, integrated over 24 million square feet of real estate, and have kept our clients loyal by exceeding their expectations for over 22 years and believing what we do is to make the lives of our clients better. All right. Welcome, Sergi. How you doing? Sergi, you got your mic? Sorry about that. Uh, doing great. Thanks for having me. Welcome, welcome. So, Sergey Goodkin is a proven leader specializing in business development, operations management, and master system integration. He is responsible for continuously improving and growing the IBIS firm and continues to bridge the gap between technology and business requirements to successfully exceed client expectations. So, with that lovely fine print out of the way, Sergey, tell me, what really are the requirements that we need to start bringing, you know, smart building automations together and really start using them for analytics? Like, where does it begin? Um, you know, we have data. What, what do we do? We have sensors. What do we do? Uh, yes, thank you. I'm actually going to touch on Margar Marguerite's point is you have to have the fundamentals down first before you bring in these advanced technologies. And so there are various requirements to enable these technologies to work well. Uh, I'm going to hit on just a few of them due to time constraints um, on the most important ones from our experience. Um, so first and foremost, uh, you need aggregated data. You need a place where you're going to store all of this data from various disparate sources in a centralized location to make it accessible for further processing and structuring. Once you have that out of the way, the next step is to structure that data. You have all these different data points or uh, information, and the next step is to um, classify that data and categorize it. Typically, it's done with some sort of data modeling, um, and that really gives the data context and meaning. Um, and when you're when you're choosing the model or the framework to classify and categorize this data, it's really important to utilize open standards and really uh, use something, uh, a very simplified methodology. The, the more simple it is, the better it'll be 
for others to understand, comprehend, and leverage for future um, uh, interpretation. Having those two requirements really lead to uh, having an independent data way. Um, and that is essentially enables other applications to leverage that data for analytics, automations, uh, and it also makes it um, <clears throat> less, makes them more effective and less costly to deploy. Finally, the, the one of the final requirements that I'm going to touch on today is really ensuring data quality. Thousands and thousands of data points. Um, it's almost impossible for these data points to all report accurate valid data 100% of the time. So, um, and according to Gardner, uh, decision-making based on inconsistent data um, is responsible for at least $15, $15 million per year of losses for an enterprise. And that's probably on the lower side. So for systems to make accurate decisions uh, on when to perform an automation or when to what data to use to provide useful insights, it really requires reliable data. So it's critical to have a data quality and response program to monitor and really cleanse that data when issues arise. Yeah, now, once no, you have, oh yeah, go ahead. I was saying, no small task to do that, right? Because obviously every building's different, every sensor's different, there's thousands of different brands of these things that could be driving data into your, your portfolio. And you're talking about, you know, bringing that all together. But just to give us a bit of clarity for folks that are new to this, like what tools do you actually bring to the table to do that? Like how do they know things are working, right? Because conceptually it makes sense, but with all this data, it can be very scary if you're just getting started. Yeah, there's various technologies to monitor things of communication, abnormal data values. There's a lot of data heuristics, things of understanding when data goes flat, when it's still communicating, it's not operating, when things go out of range, um, and when things just drop offline. Um, <clears throat> all of those can be caught with different technologies and different systems and processes. Got it. So, so assume we have this data and it's clean, which is which is a big assumption for many of us, but some of us are there. You know, then how do you take that and obtain the most value from these smart building options, uh, you know, automations and the analytics? How do you actually get the payoff from all this hard work? So you really um, well, let me advance this to the next slide. Oh, sorry about the lag there. Are you going to show me? Okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So there's a couple a couple of steps that we'll we'll hit on today. And I think the most important part is to really establish uh, a, a team. And that team would be res whose responsibility would be to plan, deploy, and really their job would be to extract the maximum value from this program, the smart building program. Once you have that team in place. Uh, you also need to make sure you need the three pillars for success, as I call it. You need the right staff to ensure that the, the roles and responsibilities are assigned for who's, who's going to do what in this program. The right technology to ensure that you can achieve the outcomes you like and the appropriate service providers who are going to provide you that strong service support to help you to get to the finish line. Each one of those pillars, if you don't have one of those, then that really uh, puts you at a risk of not achieving your goals. Uh, as part of having the right staff, you really need to have IT experts. They need to be um, uh, informed about the program and ready to support because, as we mentioned, data quality is a big part of the success of maximizing value from any smart building data. Um, <clears throat> so IT involvement is crucial for that. 
You also need to have a change management process. We talked about data quality monitoring. Um, and the next piece we can talk about is, you know, utilizing continuous commissioning technologies. So you put in all these analytics on day one, things are working great, uh, but you need a process uh, or a tool to then continue to ensure that these systems are working as they were originally designed. So you can continue to sustain that value and sustain that return on investment. And <clears throat> you also need to establish goals and track progress, as we talked about um, uh, earlier um, during Kevin's section. And you need to communicate the value that's achieved through the program to all stakeholders and receive feedback. So then you can apply that and get further value out of the program. Great. So I would say thank you for introducing kind of the, taking this raw data and how to actually turn it into something usable for your business, what that process looks like. But let me ask you kind of one last question. What was the strangest sensor or the oddest data point you've come across in, in trying to find something out about a building? What was this the most you know, unique and memorable connector you had to figure out how to bring into your data set and, and make useful for your clients? Um, you know, I think uh, I'll just bring up one recently. We, we had to um, come up with a solution to integrate some residential thermostats from a commercial building, something that we don't typically come across, but we were able to um, figure out a way how to get it done, save the client, you know, a lot of money from having to rip and replace thermostats. And we produced a like-for-like -like, um, mobile application for them to use that mimic the whole um, software that they usually use. And they can figure out which uh, which units driving the cost by having their H, their ACs at the 60 year round. Yeah, <laughs> awesome, great, cool story. Thank you. All right, uh, thank you, Sergi. Up next, we have J2 Innovations with their video. Thin Micro BMS makes less complex buildings smart, comfortable, and efficient. It delivers an integrated and customizable building management system in a fast and affordable way and can manage a range of disciplines such as HVAC, lighting, energy, and refrigeration, along with scheduling, alarming, trending, and reporting applications. Its simple monitoring and controlling complies with energy efficiency regulations, such as EPBD. With plug-and-play engineering and strong integration through open protocols and templating, it's suitable for single or multiple sites. FIN's Edge2 cloud technology provides secure remote access for management and data collection. Discover more about all of our app suites at j2in.com. Excellent, thanks. With that, I'd like to introduce uh, Scott Mensch. Hi, Scott. Good afternoon, glad to be here. Great, um, so Scott is the VP of Customer Experience of J2 Innovations and joined as a partner there in 2011. He's best known as an industry expert in smart homes, smart buildings, and smart device management. Scott is passionate about innovation and sustainability in the building automation industry. His specialization is the ability to simplify the complexities of technology into eloquent solutions. So Scott, I am sitting here in Manhattan in a large class A tower that is LEED certified and carbon neutral due to a hydropower plant uh, upstate. Um, with that said, large buildings only account for about a third of total building emissions. People don't think about that, but most buildings are in fact not skyscrapers in Manhattan. Um, so, you know, what's more, What's what's more important? Is small buildings less likely to be managed, right? They're harder to get in there. There's less data about them. There's less going on. 
what would be your strategy, you know, coming at this to trying to reduce the total carbon impact or to make your buildings more efficient to manage small and mid-sized buildings, right? Large buildings, they're huge, they're capital intensive. It's kind of a solved thing, but going into small and mid-sized buildings, kind of what's the secret? How do you do that? Yeah, if you really take kind of the things that I've been passionate about, both the smart buildings and smart homes, we start to get a clue as to where that solution lies through what we've done in the residential market, in the consumer market. There's been some really great software advances in the way that we've reduced cost and reduced complexity in particular through use of great software. So if you kind of use the residential smart home, you get an S thermostat. It's walk through a few <clears throat> questions on an app and uh, even guide you through the wiring as a installer. Uh, no longer do we have this system integrator, this engineered system to get that uh, energy savings on the HVAC side. Same thing carries over to smart light switches, to energy meters and so forth. All these are components that we find in big buildings, but traditionally were engineered systems done by system integrators, by application engineers. So what if we took that, that clue from the residential space and reduce that complexity, uh, de-skill what it takes to get into a smaller building and get that information and start being able to leverage it? So that's really the challenge in the market for the mid-market. But as you said, it's so key to get this mid-market in order to get to zero carbon because they represent such a big part of the energy equation. So we take those two factors and it really gets me excited because it shows that there's hope. There's, there's things that we can do to bring this to fruition. And so as an example, um, we can involve tenants and we can create visualizations and we can de-skill the integration that goes into it to bring these things together to make that small building as useful in the portfolio as the large skyscraper that you're in where you have a full-on uh, facilities management team and so forth. And so I'm proposing that uh, what I'm coining the term micro BMS is a small version of what we're doing in, in large scale, but by putting some clever software in the form of wizards and by using templates and be able to use integrations that are all kind of worked out ahead of time, uh, we get the same value with a lot less of the work to put in to get the uh, installation done. So really it's about to not necessarily a brand new technology, but making it easier and scaled down to the actual customer. You're not, this technology has been out there for a while, but might not have been advanced enough that could be scaled to the right level to use for these small and medium buildings. Exactly. And again, in the residential space, if I wanted to fully integrate a home theater uh, 20 years ago, it would have been hired an engineer, hire an applications engineer, a software programmer and a wiring contractor. And $30,000 later, I'd have this wonderful home theater. And now I think we've all experienced this either through the Geek Squad as kind of a de-skilled labor set or even ourselves doing just plug and play kind of components. I still have that home theater now, but it's at a fraction of the cost. And it's because some of the creative use of software and uh, the data base behind it in the form of templates that built on the experience of those people, but then um, democratized it and made it available to everybody. Yeah, and then, you know, the question looming over everything is how do you actually harness this information you're gathering um, with these new capabilities to deliver value? So, you know, and we've talked before about data modeling, analytics, 
you know, what, what is going to go on? What's, what's the future for this space of building automation? Like, how are these new requirements and standards going to continue to push the market forward? Yeah, that's kind of interesting, at least for us in our software and our technology stack. Um, the answer was both the solution and the long-term goal. Uh, for us, we really standardized and, and focused on data models and data standards. And we found that traditional building automation systems, you re-engineered a point four times. One time for visualizing it, one time for controlling it, one time for alarming it, and, and, and so forth. And so if we could adopt a, a data standard once and put that into the database so it self-declares, so other applications go, oh, I see, you're a space temperature sensor, you're yeah. an energy meter, then the clicking and the engineering that a typical application engineer had to do goes away because we write yeah. the apps so that they leverage that metadata to make that magic happen. Yeah. And to take your question a little bit further, the end game is that we now have a database of tagged information that can now go northbound into a lot of the other things that you've seen on the panel talk about today, such as analytics, AI, and other things. So it's kind of neat that our solution is actually feeding the future as well, because uh, we, we solve the, the lower cost and lower complexity problem by using data and by using standard models. Got it. That's excellent. No, um, so thank you, Scott, for laying out, you know, kind of how these things can be a little bit more bite-sized than people might might realize. And kind of my, my last uh, my last question, you know, are these standards realistic today? How much further do we have to go before this stuff is truly plug and play? What do you see kind of the next three to five years playing out in the BMS space? Are we still in that consolidation and standardization phase, or are we going to actually start to, you know, hit the runway and go? No, the, the really great news is we had our 10-year anniversary for Project Haystack. And that is a, a data standard. It's an open standard and open community. And in that 10 years, we've seen so many new products as well as technology built on the standard. So this is real. You can go out and buy, and there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of projects out there where this technology is part of that, that building. And so I think we're at the point where we start to reap the benefits of it. Um, because we have products that are inherently taking care of business at the low end, which is the standard open protocols, and now taking care of business on the top end, which is standardized data protocols through APIs. Excellent. So what you're telling me, Scott, is that the future is now. Is that right? It is indeed. There's absolutely no time to waste. And in fact, in order to get to carbon zero, we really need to get this mid-market to a more sustainable point. So that, that's my call to action today. Excellent. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. So oh, up next, you. we have one last video from LinkSpring before I introduce Mark. LinkSpring's Edge to Enterprise for Enterprise and Multi-Sites is a turnkey smart building solution that connects, accesses, and translates operational and facility data from devices and equipment into actionable information. Information that can save energy, increase efficiency, and reduce operating costs while maintaining a higher level of comfort for occupants. The Edge to Enterprise solution consists of hardware and software combined with engineering, deployment, and professional services. It's everything you need to deploy and experience the value of a smart facility enterprise, including connectivity, integration, interoperability, automation, command and control, data access and normalization, analytics, and cloud services.
Hey, Andrew. You're muted. <laughs> Thank you. That's usually my job to tell people they're muted. Thank you, Mark. You're more a, than welcome. You're a pioneer in leading the intelligent smart buildings and M2M movements, pushing the industry forward, and has contributed to transforming and changing the intelligent buildings in M2M and now IoT industries. Uh, Mark is the chief marketing and communications officer at LinkSpring and leads the corporate and product marketing strategy, brand management, public relations, and communications that support the company's strategic growth initiatives. Whew, that was a mouthful. So, Mark, here we are, coming into the end of our, our panel before we go into Q&A. We've heard a lot of things. We've heard about data analytics. We've heard about leasing. We've heard about AI in your buildings. We've heard about, you know, getting data different places, bringing it together. You know, kind of bring us home. Paint the whole picture, right? It starts, obviously, on the ground in the physical asset. If you don't know what's happening there, you really can't go anywhere. But it can be a long journey to get from there to delivering enterprise value. So can I show me a bit about what you guys are doing, how you're seeing this come together now today, having spent so much time in the industry? Sure. Uh, and again, thanks, thanks for everybody for joining us. You know, ultimately, it has now come down to, in my opinion, one word, data. It's an irreplaceable asset. And today, data has never been more important in the buildings market, the in buildings environment, the smarter building uh, environment. But truly, the challenge has been, and the key word is has, it's not anymore. To make it available, as we heard Scott say and Sergey say, in that right format, deliver it to that right person or persons at the right time, and most importantly, a secured environment. And it really is all about creating an automated data value chain. And, you know, with it is, I think we need to look at a couple things is, let's look at the why. Automating data has numerous benefits and value. And again, I think this is part of the unsung part of the industry now. People think of data and they just think, wow, big data. I need masses of amounts of data completely false. It's the right data. It's the smart data. So the why part of this is increased efficiency. By automating data, it reduces one's time and effort to process and analyze large volumes of data. Uh, it increases the overall efficiency and productivity, especially when and if you have large portfolios where you're trying to manage uh, a different uh, group of buildings, different parts of the country, as we heard earlier on. So being able to have that automated process, uh, it helps increase efficiency. Second, and most importantly, is the accuracy. And you are reducing the human error. And let's face it, we're all human. We all make some mistakes. It's getting that accurate data to make better decisions and reduce the associated cost that occurs when that data is incorrect. You go down one path, whoops, I'm in the wrong way. I gotta go back to the other path. Third is cost savings. Automating data can help reduce labor costs as we've kind of touched upon earlier. And uh, fourth is better insights. Better data, quality data allows you to make better decisions by having better insights and that increased agility. Managing and operating buildings today requires you to be, you know, it's real time. We, it is not a passive 
sport anymore. It's real time and it's happening now. So, but when it all comes down to it is this, as I see it is asking the right questions to yourselves and then the development of a strategy that the tail end of that strategy is truly defined operational outcomes and business outcomes. And I think the business outcomes now is the most important driver that, uh, at least what I'm seeing. So let's look at a sort of like a six layer approach to automating data. So first, let's look at sources. You've got in a building, HVAC lighting, you've got a ton of legacy systems. You don't wanna have to change out those systems if you're an owner operator. Today, you cannot have a conversation in our market without talking about sensors. There's a sensor everywhere and thousands within our buildings today. You have web services, you have your traditional OT equipment, your rooftop units, your air handlers, your chillers, so forth and so on. And as we've seen, there are multiple, multiple applications. So again, identify your sources. Next is the access and integration. How are you gonna collect it? How is it gonna be organized, normalized, tagged, modeled? Scott mentioned Project Haystack. Again, I too and Wingspring, we're firm believers and practitioners of that. But ultimately that last word, interoperability. We have to make this data interoperable with each other, whether it's from an HVA system, whether it's from, uh, occupancy sensors, indoor air quality. So that's a key here. The next is storage that uh, it was mentioned an IDL independent data uh, layer. And again, you got to make sure that that's trusted, secure, and who's going to define the access and use privileges. Does Andrew have access to it? Does Scott, does Francis, uh, Mark does not. So identifying who truly has those privileges and then the analytics, decide what kind of analytics here needs to be automated and part of this automated data process, predictive, preventative, FDD, ESG, which is now uh, an integral part of um, what we need to deliver as an industry. And then the, the delivery of it, who are you gonna deliver it to? How is it gonna be presented? Dashboards, visualizations, uh, notifications if alarms go off, and finally, at the end of this data layer chain, automated data layer chain, is what I talked about earlier, the operational income, uh, outcomes, I'm sorry. And it's more about, uh, you know, I wanna save energy, I wanna run my building this way. But look at the business outcomes. And when I mean business outcomes, I'm talking about risk mitigation, balancing the CapEx and the OpEx side of the house, the markability of the building. So look at those business economic outcomes. So I think that gives, uh, hopefully that gives everybody a kind of a balanced approach to automating data. Mute it. Did it again, you're, you're, you're my- I'm a bad, I'm a bad <laughs> influence on you. No, but I wanna ask, this is really great. You've laid it out for us exactly kind of how we need to think about automation across our entire business and you kind of talk about how each link of this chain is very important but 
break it down for me, like kind of a one takeaway to summarize here at the end. So let's pretend I'm new to real estate investing. I bought a large portfolio of buildings all over the place and I'm coming into a blind. You know, where do I start? This set, this lays it out very nicely where I'm going, but like, what is the, what is the starting point for those who's just kind of getting into grips with this automation journey? Strategy, 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 followed by a plan. And I think if you do not start that way, I don't believe you can, you will be successful in an effort to go further along and create that automated value chain or a better operating and a better business uh, performing uh, environment for your business. Excellent. Thank you. All comes back to fundamentals once again. Um, so with that said, let's bring everyone back and we're going to do some Q&A. But before we jump straight to the questions, uh, we have a couple polls for the audience. So we have two polls for you. Um, the first one will be about the size of your organization, and the second one will be about technology. So let's start with the size. Um, so these questions obviously get up, tell us a bit more about you before we jump into Q&A and help us drive our questions. Um, we will leave the chat uh, open as well. So go ahead if you have any specific questions uh, for our panelists. Now will be the time to get those detailed answers. So drop those into the chat, and they will come to me. Um, but the first question we have is just to get a feel for the size. Are we talking to you know people focused on individual building optimization, very large portfolio, somewhere in between, um, just something to, to get a feel for here. So we have a good mix. A couple of very large owners, some specialized, and quite a few folks uh, in the middle, so that's good to know. Um, I think we probably have a lot of those small and medium-sized businesses, Scott, that you're so focused on with those portfolio sizes. And secondarily, we've talked a lot about emerging technology, a lot about technology that's, that's, that's matured and become more modern. You know, Which technologies are you most focused on in your automation journey? for your buildings. I didn't know what a SCADA was until a few months ago when we started uh, investing in solar. So that was, that was news to me, but a lot of things on the cutting edge here to get more data and more intelligence around your building. So which one of these stick out to you as a, as a, a top, uh, top choice? Analytics, yep, I think analytics, I wasn't surprised to see that win. I think every single one of our panelists touched on the value of data or, or analytics in some way. That is kind of where we're all going, so uh, no surprise here with energy management and single pane of glass coming up at the end. Great, so thank you audience for participating and giving us that background. And again, feel free to drop any specific questions in the chat and I'll be sure to answer them. So that said, let's go back to where we started. Kevin, Marguerite, um, you know, you're sitting up here at the top, you know, managing large funds, looking at properties at scale, you know, you've heard a lot of very specific stories around what can happen in a building where you can get value from automation all the way through that chain to bring it back to you at the at the kind of management level, uh, talking to a fund. You know, wh what do you see coming kind of seeing that full circle? Is there something that stood out to you as a potential area you're more interested in now? Is there maybe a gap you think you might have that needs to be addressed? You know, what are you seeing as, as the next steps in your automation journey now that you've sat through kind of a lot of different ways of attacking automation? I'll call on um, Kevin. Uh, uh, no, go ahead, Marie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I think overall analytics is a big hot topic for us as well. We do, we we are still kind of a hybrid, and we're still doing stuff very manual. So I'd love to streamline more of that going forward. Um, I know we still have a lot of um, sustainability and um, efforts there. So we're actually, you know, just, just looking at our five-year, we're redoing our five-year goals. So I know still probably a lot of these 
um, vendors that presented, you know, seem very um, interesting and things that we potentially can take control of, you know, can um, engage with based on, you know, some of our, our building automation as well. That's great. What about you, Kevin? Anything stand out? Anything In that, you um, want to tap into? <laughs> uh, well, uh, we'll see. But in terms of everything that everyone's shared, I think uh, we, you know, what I spoke about is that we are very focused on uh, processes and corporate, um, and that's just uh, and that's just one of the things we do. We are, of course, exploring automation across everything, um, and some of the things that the, uh, some of the things that the panelists have shared, those are areas where either we're actively exploring or we've talked about in the past, um, and it might be worthwhile to restart the exploration again. But yeah, automation across the board is a very hot topic for us as well. Yeah, and we, we talked a bit about sustainability, and I think an important thing for folks on you know attending this panel, they're trying to get automation initiatives maybe approved by their board or their their senior executive team, trying to get more funding for existing initiatives. You know, it all comes back to value and measuring value. I think every panel has touched on that because ultimately we have to sell these things we're trying to bring to our business so they get approved. Um, you know, but sometimes there's risk there, right? Sometimes you're not sure if the payoff is there. I think ESG can be, you know, it's a very hot topic and you see it as well. You know, we have local laws here in New York that are mandating, you know, carbon reporting and, and requirements. Other jurisdictions do not. So depending on where you invest, the incentives are different. The way you measure is different. It's all very complicated. And there's a real fear that we might make this huge investment to automate our climate reporting and then find out that we don't really have to do it or it's not driving value or it's not driving change. Um, so, so how do you do that? How do you take a nebulous sort of idea and 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 see it through to completion? And, and how do you get past that fear, right? I think that's part of it too. Is that you, know, you guys have these great solutions, but until you see it in practice, it can be a bit scary. So, you know, how do you advise customers that are in that sort of wavering zone where they they don't quite know yet if the payoff's going to be real? How do they get that certainty? Is it by placing small bets and seeing if they pay off? Is it about looking at comps and peers? I mean, you know, real estate guys, they love comps. You know, what, what are you guys seeing out there to get these projects actually, you know, shovel ready and, and, and start start going? Uh, I'll start off. Uh, for a lot of the stuff we do, um, one of the core rules is the fact that it's pen to paper, or maybe, maybe for today, it's a, a mouse pointer to Excel spreadsheet. Automation requires a fundamental process and foundation level knowledge to be built upon. And without that, um, it's probably not going to work. And so generally, at least for the, our automation journeys, we always start, hey, here's a manual process. If we can't do it manually, then it's probably very hard for us to find some kind of technology that can actually automate it. Uh, you, you have to go over that manual hump. Sometimes um, people don't want to do it because it's just too time consuming. It takes too many hours a day. Get it. But unless you can prove it out manually, it's, it, the automation is probably not going to work. And so uh, in terms of building out the business case or use case, that's generally the easier part. If you have someone willing to go through the manual steps, showcasing, hey, here's all the things we do, and then here's the final outcome, and then you can make a judgment call on that. Yeah. I'll, I'll, this is Mark. I'll jump in, too, is that, you know, we see in the industry a lot of great use cases. And a lot of those use cases are, in my opinion, the end all of be all. They are what every building should uh, tr strive for. But to your point, Andrew, or to your question is, you can start, identify three or four things that you can at least start a project to, to begin. And then along with that strategy, which I mentioned, 
and identifying the outcomes, both operational and business, and to see if that proves out. You don't have to bite and eat the entire apple. And I think that's a perception in our industry that we continually try to overcome each and every day because the technology is here. It's not, we're not, we're not waiting for the next shiny bright object. We don't need that. We have that technology. And I would say the other challenge and then um, is this, when it comes to analytics, again, we can get the data, we can uh, curate it, we can do all the stuff with the data, put it up in the, uh, in an independent data layer. It's understanding that data and having folks on staff who can interpret that data and then action that whatever that data is telling you for that to happen. Oh, we're, we found X, Y, Z. Great, that's one thing. But if you don't do anything with it, you're not gonna get your return. Yeah, measuring return is what, what we're all here to do in the first place. That makes right, a lot of sense. Um, so we got a well, bunch of audience questions flooding in. Oh, please go ahead. Sorry, Andrew, I, I was just gonna close with one thing that, that uh, is always a question I ask myself individually, but like, what is your time worth? I think a lot of people think that once you implement a technology, you have to be married to it. It's like, I mean, there's plenty of technologies that don't exist anymore that used to be the thing. And I think when I, you know, again, we talked to thousands of folks in, in many of the positions of the people, you know, in the audience and such. It's, I say, how long is it taking you to do it today? Three hours. How often do you do it? Once a week. Okay. How long is the project? 24 months. All right. This will take you five minutes. So it's like, well, what can you do if you, you know, if you're going to go ahead and instead of three hours, it takes you five minutes, extrapolate that over the course of the project. And even if this isn't the technology that changes the world and something else, comes out you'll still make your money back you know based on the amount it take you to sit here and have to walk around do captures and all that jazz versus just automating it you know it's it's crawl walk run but you don't have to be married to it at the end of the day it's also very easy to measure when you break it down right we're not talking like this is not like super advanced you know quantum computing it's it's dollars and cents it's hours it's timesheets it's it's efficiency so that'll make sense so the first specific question we have this is going to go to you scott um what does plug and play lighting control integration look like? Do any network lighting controls speak native to Haystack? This is from Levin Knock. Yeah, so one of the things that we found is in the device level, uh, BACnet's done a great job getting devices, talking to devices and having that interoperability between manufacturers. So to me, that's the starting point is you always ask that question first, can I get device connectivity? And then at the integration layer, a, a framework, if you will, um, you take that open protocol and you get a normalized data set. In some projects and products, it's a proprietary normalized data set. And in some products and, and projects like ours, it's a open standard based uh, data set. And so you get it inherently depending on the product or you do a little bit of mapping after the fact. Um, but the, the, the main goal here is to start with an open protocol at a lighting controller level and then pick a convenient or the best framework that will get you to the independent data layer as quickly as possible. Got it. And a related question, this one's for you, Sergi. Um, this is related to your thermostats you mentioned. So uh, this is from Levin. Do you expect Matter to grow into commercial, just like your residential thermostat project? And can you talk about cybersecurity and access challenges when you're dealing with these things? Join you there. Yep. It hit me again. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah. So I do expect there to be 
more uh, devices, IoT devices that communicate um, as they do on the residential side of, of the market. We're very different from commercial. And so we're already seeing that trend coming on board with a lot of different systems and technologies. A lot of uh, software is moving to uh, software as a service. That's requiring uh, outbound communication um, uh, to outside of the building network, the operational technology or building technology network. And um, <clears throat> from a cybersecurity standpoint, that of course opens up some some challenges and opportunities for implementing best practices when it comes to deploying these solutions. Um, some of the challenges that we've experienced working with IT teams is to really help them understand how this data uh, flows from from the device up to the cloud and how to open up the the right access um, to do it in a secure fashion. Um, so a lot of IT teams are still learning that these solutions can be deployed securely and sometimes they need a little bit of support to understand the IoT uh, industry as opposed to traditional software. Um, but the good thing well, is it's 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 all moving in that direction. Yeah, it's interesting you said you mentioned IT teams specifically and there's a question here that, that sort of runs counter that I want to bring up for the whole panel because I sit in an IT team, we have some IT, other IT uh, decision makers here on the panel as well as vendors, but so here's the question from Paul Neiser. You know, what are your thoughts on the business leading these automation efforts independently of IT? And I'm going to hold my tongue and let you guys answer. <laughs> let me, uh, can I build on Sergey's um, comment? Sure. And, and one of the dissynergies between my residential analogy and commercial buildings is that traditionally in the building space, things are done at the edge. And what I mean by edge, it's within the building. So there's an integration platform, there's some kind of controller, minimally there's a gateway as a data pump to get it to the, the cloud. In residential, they kind of skipped over that. And that's actually one of the pain points that Matter is, is trying to address is all these different protocols is happening and you either buy into one system and the point is they all go up to the cloud. So uh, the, the alternate perspective on this topic is that data can be and should be aggregated at the edge and then process to the cloud for a hybrid, the best of both worlds scenario. It doesn't mean that it has to get to the cloud right from the thermostat like it does in the residential space. And then that leads over to the follow-up question, which is if you're doing it locally, your IT is more constrained to the physical as opposed to the virtual. Yeah, but then like ultimately, you know, every business is structured a bit differently. Um, and the role of IT is constantly changing. I mean, I, I've been evangelizing digital native teams for years and saying there needs to be a technologist embedded in every single facet of what you do, or at least technology-minded uh, team members. But then practically speaking, you know, we got real cybersecurity currents concerned with edge devices. We have highly complex systems sending data to and fro. You know, is it even, is it possible or advisable for business to be leading this without IT? Uh, I think that's what Paul's kind of implying with this question. I would say no, but maybe others disagree. Uh, no, Andrew, I would agree with you in the fact that it, it uh, well, the state of position is you actually need uh, leadership from both sides, uh, both from the business and from the IT, because historically what we've seen is that if you let the business run with it, uh, they want every single bell and whistle, and it just gets out of control. If you let IT run with it, they fail to capture the 20%, the 20% that causes a lot of problems, so the solution they automatically come up with doesn't work. And not because it doesn't work, it just works 80% of the time, but uh, the last 20% makes everyone's head blow up and they don't want it. And so it has to be a dual leadership structure. 
And I, were, thoughts I saw. Yeah, yeah I, uh, sorry, I didn't realize I was on. It suffered from the muted uh, thing that's going across this webinar today. Um, <laughs> I would agree that it ideally it is the convergence of both OT and IT together. And ultimately, that's going to further ensure the success of whatever one does. And with the way the technology exists with the controllers becoming more IP enabled, the devices, et cetera, that you need the buy-in from IT. And what I, what I find the biggest challenge is, is that the IT doesn't know uh, all the ins and outs of the OT side. And that's not a negative, it's just they've never been together in previous lives. So part of the whole challenge is educating the IT side on the OT side. Yeah. Um, wow, the question, the floodgates have opened. We're not going to get to them all. I wish you guys got these a little bit sooner. Um, we got to get you way to the very end. We have a flood. I'll go with one last question here. Um, this, I'll go to you, Marguerite. Uh, so they're asking kind of, you know, when you're leveraging teams to do automation, right, is this all coming from your internal team? Kevin broke down kind of how his time off team operates, but you're dealing with kind of really in the weeds, getting your processes right, working with leasing managers, working with accounting. You know, is it internal teams that are driving these processes? Are you leveraging external partners? Is it a mix? Are you able to, to completely do things with third parties? Like, what does that structure look like? What's in-sourced, what's outsourced? How do you think about your talent as you really kick off, you know, these, these sort of projects? Sure. So, I mean, from just a technology perspective, I've been outsourcing all of my development and infrastructure for a while now. Um, so we, we definitely outsource and we partner with that. But I do think from a business process planning, we got to get the process right before we start engaging a third party. Um, and I think as long as, you know, you have a you you ultimately have to have somebody from the business owning that, whether it's somebody in IT or somebody on the business side. And that's I think um, the you know, the outsourcing term has been coming up a lot more frequently with the executive leadership, the finance leaders. And, um, you know, I've been that's where I say, like, listen, that doesn't mean that you're not gonna, you're gonna reduce headcount 100%. Like you still have to have somebody partnering with them, but let's leverage, because we don't have the ability to, you know, increase our teams, let's leverage third parties where we can. So I think it just depends, um, but I have had good experiences, you know, outsourcing things and leveraging that. Um, it just takes longer. And that's the, that's the only, that's the biggest thing is what's your culture and what's the need from the business because, I, we've been doing that and that's just kind of what I say is, you know, it's going to take longer because we don't have the in-house resources that can change, you know, when Kevin was talking about operational metrics and changing things in a day, we, we don't have that capability. Right. And then you mentioned too, the need to partner with IT and they kind of, who, who are your partners? That ties another question I have here in the chat. It's, um, you know, who in the business is driving the push for automation, COOs, CFOs, asset management, what department, and especially depending on the type of automation, obviously it might be different partner you have to make to get that process done. So your friends, I'll throw it to you, right? Because you're selling a pretty specific bespoke product. Who in the real estate business is coming to you? Is it, is it an asset manager who's stuck with spending, who's sick of spending the night in airports his flight was canceled? Is it, you know, someone in finance trying to get more data to do more analytics? Like who's, who's actually pushing for automation in the business that IT people like me can partner with? 
Yeah, totally. So funny enough, like a lot of, you know, again, the business was really focused on GCs and subs back in the day. And then all of a sudden the owners go to site and they see somebody walking around with a thing on their head and they say, what is that? And then I show them all this information and they're like, wait, we don't have access to that. Suffolk only has their own and I can't see any of that. And that's where it really kind of opened it up. And so I think the one thing I would I would suggest, because I've been through plenty of these, obviously, as everybody else has, but you want to give IT the amount of uh, leverage that IT needs, but not get in the way. And I think what I've seen time and time again is that you have business folks that say, this is a really obvious thing to do. And then IT steps in and they say, well, let's put it through its paces. I mean, I was in, you know, the, one of the biggest companies in the world. We we just finished legal in IT and it took two and a half years. I mean, we went through multiple like, and, and we're just a service company. I'm not building any of these buildings. I won't be on site ever. Right. And so I think what's important is that you need to understand when you step into this, you know, the businesses, you know, from an asset management to acquisition teams, they like taking a look at this portfolio. Property managers are really intrigued. But also, if you bring this to IT, I think you have to set proper expectations. That's here's a SaaS business. They SOC 1, 2 compliant. They're Fed ramp. They work with the federal government, et cetera, et cetera. You build this story so that, you know, hopefully your partner on IT doesn't walk in you know, with with all the knowledge they learned at MIT and say, all right, let's make sure this thing's, you know, completely foolproof, because for better, or for worse, as we've all seen in the economy, like not any company is, is completely foolproof. And when you're just trying to get something implemented, it really slows down, I think, the, uh, the momentum and the excitement if you're if you're sitting here throwing the book at them. So I think that balance is, is I'm pretty, sensing pretty powerful from an audience with these questions, right? They want good partners. They want to make sure they're not out over their skis. And I have a question, another one from Paul. Paul, you're a question asking Rockstar. Um, I'll throw it to you, Sergio, first. Um, so here's a question. You know, there's obviously risk associated with picking the wrong automation technology, right? There's so many vendors, so many products. You probably have seen thousands of different sensors trying to connect to them. You know, and, and the fear is once you're in, you're in. It's very tough to get out. Is, is that fear real? Like, is there a real commitment risk? to starting to march on the path to automation? And if so, how do you mitigate that when you think about making these purchasing decisions? That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think, um, you know, early on in our industry, that was a, a, a real concern, right? Because you, you, you go with a um, an integrator and you, you realize that they're not providing the value you need, then you have to reintegrate bring all that data back into another system and start all over again. So uh, now I think the industry is maturing a little bit with these terms like independent data layer. What that does is that enables uh, companies to bring this data together and then to pilot solutions utilizing a central data source that's already structured. That gives them the flexibility not to get vendor locked, right, with a specific vendor because they have a centralized data source they can test different solution providers, all that access the same data lake or the same uh, data source. Um, so there are ways to do that. And I, I'm a strong believer in doing, um, you know, pilots um, to prove, you know, proof of concepts and things of that nature to really prove the value. Um, and then, you know, like Mike Mark said, you don't need to eat the whole apple at once. You can take a bite at a time, see if that bite tastes good, and then you can continue on the path. Or you can throw that apple out. No, it definitely makes sense, although independent data layers can be more, more complex than they first appear. I thought I had an independent data layer with one of my uh, applications and then realized I had a whole bunch of JSON files in a SQL database, which wasn't exactly uh, what I needed at the end of the day. Um, so with that said, we have, we have one last minute for any last thoughts. Um, anyone need to add before we jump back to Chuck and wrap us up? On, on the owner, uh, on the data itself, all owners, 
you, Andrew, make sure you own the data, that that data is not owned by someone else or whatever kind of agreement. You own the data. Yeah. If it's not in my cloud, it doesn't exist is my, my motto. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Chuck, you want to wrap us up and, and bring us home with the last two minutes? Yeah, I, I think, uh, of course, you guys uh, have got just a tremendous amount of I told people, you know, you got to take notes because uh, there's just a lot happening here. So especially for you people who are watching this for the uh, as a recording, I, I will quote the quote of the day goes to Marguerite. And that is, you've got to document your business process. And that's the key to automation. I think that that one, uh, I'll give that one to you, Marguerite. So uh, awesome. Awesome. Uh, uh, it's very good. You guys did great. I want to thank all the panelists, too, for all your valuable contributions for today's session. It's just really, again, so much information to process. And for the live audience, boy, did we get a flood of questions there at the end. They did. You're right, Andrew. They waited until the very end. Uh, I've, I've documented all the questions. I'll send them to the group along with who, the person that asked them. So if they want to get back with you, they can. And whether you've joined this uh, live or watching it as a recording, thank you for tuning in. And be sure to register for the next webinar series. It's the second part of this one, Automating Everything to Combat a Looming Downturn and Measurable Business Value. But getting into the how, the case studies, and we're doing that on April the 27th, followed by uh, enterprise systems, data integrations, industry direction, primarily from the investment management side. That will be on May the 4th, Star Wars Day, of course. And now make your plans for RealCon, IBCon 2023. You might see just about everybody who's on this panel there if you're coming. Uh, you'll be able to connect with this community in person, develop new relationships, expand your network connections. We'll be in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace in mid-June. Um, I've heard recently that the hotel room, if it's not sold out, it is very close to being sold out. So uh, be sure to get your reservations in. So uh, that's it for us. Uh, we wish you well. Be safe. And uh, thank you again for tuning into the RealCom webinars. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate the time. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you.